Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. In 1879, Thomas Edison patented the first commercially viable incandescent light bulb. In 1880, the British Perforated Paper Company debuted toilet paper. And at this very same point in history... Sarah Emily Howe introduced the women of the greater Boston area to the Ladies' Deposit Company, which potentially sounds a lot better than it really was. It was really a scam. Sarah's scam was one of the first incidents of modern financial fraud as we know it in the United States. The Ladies' Deposit Company was a savings bank that promised a very high rate of interest on deposits, so high that it seemed to many that it had to be impossible. It relied on referrals to grow its customer base, and Sarah used the deposits she collected from those new customers to pay the large returns she'd promised to early customers. Or did she? <laughs> Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarki. And I'm Holly Fry. Sarah was born in Providence, Rhode Island, probably between 1820 and 1827. But honestly, Sarah's history is really fuzzy through her younger years. Here's what historians do know. She was married to a man named James M. Solomon for about a dozen years. We don't know about James's destiny, but we do know that she got married a second time, this time to a man named Mr. Lane. We also don't know Mr. Lane's destiny, but we do know that she married a third time to a man named Florimond Howe in 1852 in Manchester, New Hampshire. Florimond was a house painter who also taught dance. Sarah contributed to the family purse by working as a fortune teller and a clairvoyant. And the pair also engaged in a little bit of petty crime. Florimond joined the Union Army as a musician in the American Civil War, and after his honorable discharge in 1864, the pair moved to Boston. During their early years in the new city, they relied upon and socialized with relatives there. But their relatives were increasingly concerned about Sarah and her mental health. 
In probate court, tried before a Judge Ames, they requested that she be confined to a hospital, and a jury of six men agreed. Sarah was found insane, to use the term of her time, and on April 20, 1867, she entered the state lunatic asylum in Taunton, Massachusetts, about 40 miles away from Boston. She was institutionalized for two years before doctors agreed that she was diagnosed as, quote, well. Determined well, Sarah continued her career as a clairvoyant and fortune teller, and she added a few things to her list of offerings, including casting of horoscopes and tarot card readings. Some reports suggest that Sarah occasionally took positions for which she lacked qualifications. In 1871, we know from a newspaper report that she was falsely practicing as a physician for, quote, female complaints. In 1875, she expanded her con game repertoire, and she was arrested several times using this particular scam. Sarah would take out multiple loans secured by the same asset, and then she wouldn't pay. So, for instance, Sarah purchased furniture on credit, after which she borrowed money against that furniture as collateral from at least six different sources. And in that instance, she was charged with one count of fraud and sentenced to one year in jail, but was later released upon appeal. Sarah had a long career as a fortune teller in Boston. In the spring of 1879, at this point in her early 50s, she began the most sophisticated con of her career. She opened a savings bank that accepted deposits only from unmarried women. Run by women for women was her slogan. She named this venture the Ladies' Deposit Company. In her prospectus, potential depositors were informed that the bank was affiliated with a Quaker charity, and it was funded with $1.5 million. Its mission, she stated, was to assist young women of limited means. And because of this backing, she claimed the Ladies' Deposit Company was able to offer interest on deposits of 2% per week, which was later amended to 8% per month. Her promise included deposit $100 now and get an additional $96 back by the end of the year. Plus, all new depositors got their first three months' interest in advance. Sarah registered herself at the city clerk's office as a married woman whose business in Boston was, quote, financial agent. She marketed her bank to, as she stated, quote, the overworked, ill-paid sisterhood, single working-class women whose finances were considered, quote-unquote, unprotected because they weren't managed by a husband or a male conservator. Over the next several months, the banking business was booming for Sarah. Some banking clients later admitted they'd borrowed money from friends and family at 6% interest in order to deposit it to earn 8%. The ladies' deposit quickly attracted attention and business and took in as much as $500,000 in deposits, which is something like $14 million in today's money. In the spring of 1880, Sarah, looking to expand her business and personal quarters, moved into a luxurious home on Franklin Square situated at the corner of Washington and East Brookline Streets. Franklin Square was and is a public park located in the South End neighborhood of Boston. The Franklin Square house, an affordable home for single women until the late 1900s, was nearby. Within a day or two, Sarah had settled with the mortgagee for the house and the land. She paid asking price, which was $40,000, 
and it's reported that she paid in rubber-banded bundles of cash. She spent thousands of dollars, some estimates as high as $50,000, on maintenance to the home, but also on a new conservatory and on interior decorations, such as plants, pictures, and, of course, furniture. As soon as the paperwork was all buttoned up and the deed done, literally and figuratively, Sarah moved everyone and everything into her new place. Her husband, Florman, her assistants and domestic staff, who were allegedly all women, as well as the property and effects of the lady's deposit. Sarah also spent cash and bundles of it decorating her banking office to create an aesthetic that would appeal to her ideal target. The Boston Daily Advertiser described her work on the interior of the lady's deposit this way, quote, The furniture, of which there were many pieces, is upholstered in raw silk of old gold figured patterns and corresponds in tone and design with the walls. The carpets are of a deep warm tone and all the ornaments are rich and in good taste. A rare taste of the interior of her business as reporters, who were typically men at this time, were almost always turned away at the door. At the time, no one used the phrase Ponzi scheme to describe Sarah Howe's con. That's because at the time, Charles Ponzi was just an infant. Sarah pulled off her scam 40 years before Charles did the same thing and became the eponym for the scheme. A Ponzi scheme involves investment fraud. It involves taking money from unsuspecting depositors or investors with promises of high interest payments, but paying that interest from later depositors rather than, as claimed, from investment gains. The whole scheme required a constant influx of new depositors to pay out the old ones. If that sounds familiar, it was in the 1920s when Ponzi promised investors a 50% return within a few months for what he claimed was an investment in international mail coupons. Like Sarah, he used funds from new investors to pay the fake returns to earlier investors. But unlike Ponzi's scam, Sarah placed a limit on deposits. She allowed her clients to draw only from accumulated interest payments and never from their original capital, a rule that she justified by claiming, we're paraphrasing here, that it would prevent savers from frivolous wasting of their own money. We are now going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, but when we're back, we will talk about what happened when the press started asking real questions about the ladies' deposit company. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. 
For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome back to Criminalia. Sarah's scam may be going well right now in this part of her story, but let's talk about how one reporter set the gears in motion to end it. At the height of her swindle, Sarah's bank was serving roughly 1,200 women. And not just women from Boston. Through word of mouth, she had banking customers in cities where she didn't even have physical banking locations, including Buffalo, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Her bank was so popular, 300 women joined in just one month. And historians actually believe that the number of her victims was far greater than the numbers we're talking about here. Sarah was so good at luring in women, the New York Times wrote that her, quote, intimate knowledge of the mental workings of her own sex puts male swindlers and male novelists to shame. In fact, the banking business was so good that Sarah established branch offices one at number 77 West Brookline Street in Boston, and the other in New Bedford, a wealthy city with an international whaling port which was about 60 miles south of Boston's South End neighborhood. Most banks would have turned away the women that Sarah served. As unmarried women, their finances were often deemed insufficient and unworthy of a banking institution's time. Thanks in part to the novelty of a woman managing a bank, Sarah's scheme, too, attracted a lot of interest from the press. That is not usually a good thing for a con artist. In January of 1880, one Boston Herald reporter who tried to ask some questions at the bank was rebuffed. In retaliation, he disguised himself as a working-class Boston woman. We don't have a description of him. We know we're very curious about it, but we'll have to use our imaginations. But in doing so, he successfully got inside, and his subsequent article reprinted a notice found pasted inside each lady's deposit-issued bank book, describing the bank and its rules as such. Quote, The Ladies' Deposit is a charitable institution for single ladies, old and young. No deposit received less than $200, nor more than $1,000. Interest at the rate of $8 on $100 per month is paid every three months in advance. 
The principal can be withdrawn upon call any day except Sunday. No deposits received from persons owning a house. Office hours from 9 to 12 a.m., 1 to 4, or sometimes 5 p.m. The promissory note also given to each depositor read, 12 months after date, I promise to pay the order of X hundred dollars, value received. When this undercover reporter asked how their amazingly good interest rates were even possible, a bank clerk replied, quote, we never disclose the methods by which we do business. When pressed, the clerk also stated a few other talking points, including, quote, we do not solicit and you need not deposit unless you wish, and we do not give references. The reporter went on to describe her in detail as, quote, a tall, slim maiden of 30 summers with dark hair and keen, searching eyes. This was, the reporter presumed, a woman named Miss Crandall, who was the figure of authority, and bank clerk and bookkeeper and Sarah's right-hand woman. There was another woman, a Mrs. Julia A. Gould, who also held a position of significant importance. Basically, Julia's been described as the first mate on Sarah's pirate ship for the first several months the lady's deposit was in business. It's her signature as agent that's on most of the deposit notes. The very next day, the Herald ran a follow-up article in which they denied they'd printed anything unfavorable against Miss Crandall's personal character, but also kept hammering on about two things. One, for sure, they thought the bank had to be mismanaged, and maybe that it was even a fraud. And two, mostly they just couldn't get past the fact that the bank was managed by a woman. Sarah herself sent a reply to the paper, a letter which, to their credit, they did print. She stated that she did not run a general banking business, she did not have a sign on her house, and did not in any way solicit deposits. And she stated the bank was a, quote, Quaker Aid Society that had, she claimed, been formed originally in Alexandria, Virginia. She continued on that all she could be found guilty of was her refusal to disclose to the press the methods by which she managed her private affairs. She addressed the reporter who wrote the two articles speculating about her as, quote, prudently refraining from any direct charge of dishonesty while insinuating such a charge. And in closing, she advised the newspaper, well, actually, she advised all men to tend to their own concerns. And with that, the Boston Herald pretty much dropped the whole thing. Questioned a reporter in the Boston Daily Advertiser, quote, Who can believe for a moment that this woman, who a few years ago was picking up a living by clairvoyance and fortune-telling, is now the almoner of one of the greatest charities in the country? The Boston Herald, yes, okay, so they didn't completely give up her story, published a piece with the headline, Mrs. Howe's Unsavory Record, in which they made wild claims, including things both true and false, like Sarah had run away at the age of 15 to marry. They reported she'd been in and out of psychiatric care and that she'd been in and out of prison. And they reported that she had once tried to lure a young girl into sex work. They made fun of her appearance and questioned her mental health. Bankers Magazine described Sarah as, quote, short, very ugly, and so illiterate as to be unable to write an English sentence or to speak without making shameful blunders. None of these things published about Sarah were confirmed by any of the publications that published them. They just printed what would sell. 
Historian George Robb has written about Sarah, quote, she had to be ugly, vulgar, and immoral. The only way her story could make sense to newspaper readers, he continued, was if Sarah was a complete outlier, both physically and mentally. In response to one newspaper reporter's critique of the lady's deposit, Sarah wrote, quote, The fact is, my dear man, you really know nothing of the basis, means, or methods on which our affairs are conducted. And when shut up in the meshes of your savings bank notions, you attempt an exposition of the impossibility of our existence. You boggle and flounder about like a bat in a flytrap. That does not sound like someone so illiterate as to be unable to write an English sentence. It also doesn't sound like Sarah can't speak without making shameful blunders. Other reporters took a different tack. They characterized her as a quick learner and a keen observer with a shrewd and discerning eye. Her disposition, many wrote, was good-natured and generous. Much of the press agreed that she was better described as unmoral than immoral, but there was also agreement that she was the most exuberant, spontaneous, imaginative, and unnecessary liar that they had ever encountered. The more the press wrote about the ladies' deposit, the more women wanted in. And when the con was eventually exposed, the women who had fallen for Sarah's swindle received surprisingly little sympathy in the media. The New York Times wrote, quote, It is plain that Mrs. Howe's methods of business would not have inveigled men. Men, even when they become victims of the sawdust swindlers, require to see how the tempter can find his account in the offer he makes them. The reporter neglected to mention here, though, that there were a number of men seeing opportunity for quick cash who had enlisted female family and friends to invest, for them, in the ladies' deposit. One depositor told the Boston Globe at the time, quote, I put every dollar I had into the bank, and if I lose it, I am a beggar. Said another victim, quote, I wanted the interest so badly that I placed a mortgage on my furniture to secure the principal to deposit. Oh, I wish I hadn't now, for I shall have my goods sold from under my head. Right now, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. And when we're back, we'll talk about the end days of Sarah's scam. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. 
Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about the Boston Daily Advertiser and how the press played a role in ending the Ladies Deposit Company. On September 25th, 1880, the Boston Daily Advertiser ran the first in a series of articles that really ignited controversy surrounding the Ladies Deposit. Aiming to expose its underbelly under the headline, A Mysterious Bank, reporters detailed the, quote, fabulous rates of interest offered to unprotected females and explored, quote, the mystery which surrounds and attaches to the bank that has never been fully dispelled. The advertiser did note that no one had complained about losing money, not one woman, not one penny. They reported, quote, whatever there may be that is suspicious, nothing unlawful is disclosed and no depositor comes forward to say that she has been unjustly dealt with. Published over several weeks, the advertiser series dug in on Sarah's activities and her bank, and that series proved to be the key that began to turn people against the ladies' deposit. Sarah's bank held a half million in deposits. But when the advertiser reported there was actually little cash on hand, it sparked a run of depositors demanding their money, and it caused the pool of new depositors to dry up. In an attempt to restore confidence in her bank, Sarah gave out $80,000 in repayments. But it was too late, and this swindle was over. October 4th, Sarah announced a partial suspension of payments, and that just proved to be the very end. It took two weeks and five days from the first article published in the Advertiser series describing her fraud until she was arrested. A piece published in The Atlantic said of Sarah's situation, quote, a storm of legal process burst upon her. Nothing at once more exciting, varied, amusing, pathetic, instructive, and satisfactory has been known in the history of our journalism. They continued, quote, This is not the career of a great criminal, but of a miserable adventuress, of a woman always sorely distressed to get a living, of one wretchedly brought up and much to be pitied. And the magazine The Nation, pretty spot on here, summarized that the demise of the lady's deposit was due to, quote, a conviction by newspaper. On October 14th, Sarah's assets were seized, and the advertiser published a follow-up article of interviews with seven prominent lawyers, all of whom said that Sarah was liable to pay her depositor's principal. Two days later, Sarah was arrested upon order of the district attorney. Unable to pay her bail, which was, depending on which newspaper account you read, 
set anywhere from $500 to $20,000, we should say the majority go with that $20,000 number, she was sent to the Suffolk County Jail. Accused by five former depositors, she was tried on five counts of cheating by false pretenses. Sarah was defended by A.O. Brewster, Esquire, and C.H. Crosby, Esquire. The government was represented by M.O. Adams, the assistant district attorney. One of the biggest hurdles for Sarah in the courtroom was the claim she'd made that the lady's deposit was financially backed by a Quaker charity. During related investigation by the Boston Daily Advertiser and testimony during her court hearing, it was proven that there was no such fund and that Sarah had no connections with any Quaker organizations. Published in The Atlantic as part of their coverage of her trial, quote, she had no more hold upon the Quakers than she had upon the Pope. In reality, she kept her depositor's money in the drawers of a chiffonier in her business parlor during working hours, according to Julia Gould, and she carried it off in baskets each night for safekeeping. When there were calls from women for disbursement, she paid out from it. But remember, she also bought her land, house, and opulent lifestyle with it as well. In Superior Court, Justice Aldrich sentenced Sarah to three years in jail on four of those five counts of soliciting money under false pretenses. There were five counts because, as we said, there were five different depositors filing against her. But in the end, the government did not pursue the fifth claim in court. The false pretense piece alleged and then was proved during the trial that her statement of the existence of a Quaker fund upon which her scam, I mean bank, was unfounded, was used simply as bait to attract victims. Later that year, in November, she was involuntarily declared insolvent after trying to pay back depositors. Her husband ended up with about $1,000 from the auction of their house, which sold for about $20,000. Remember, Sarah had paid $40,000 in cash for that property. Upon her release from jail in 1884... Sarah got back to work in the banking business. So let's back up for a minute, though, because if you're like us, you're wondering, how could a person just start a bank? Well, as it turns out, anyone could do it. Says historian Rob, quote, If you could get people to give you money, you could call it a bank. You advertise, you rent a fancy office space, people come and give you money. It was amazing how much money you could make before anybody actually caught you. Prior to the American Civil War, the United States had a really loose system of finance and banking. After the country's centralized bank, the Central Bank of the United States, was shuttered in a controversial move by President Andrew Jackson and despite, or perhaps in spite of, Congress's objections during the Bank Wars of 1837, it left only state chartered banks. Known as the free banking era, state chartering standards were rarely stringent and almost never enforced, and many new banks formed, and formed quickly. A man named Jay Cook founded what is considered America's first investment bank in New York in 1861. As industry boomed and the nation grew, it needed a more mature financial system, and the free banking era ended with the passage of the National Banking Acts of 1863-64, and 65. The monetary and banking system expanded swiftly, but it was repeatedly plagued by banking crises. Fast forward a few years to 1913, and the Federal Reserve was formed. At the time of Sarah's Khan in the 1880s, though, 
the United States was rebuilding after the American Civil War. Industrial development was booming, and both immigration and urbanization were expanding. That said, people were making money, and they were putting their money in the country's new banks. Of course, there were still few regulations on banks and very little oversight. And so for con artists like Sarah, that allowed them to prey on people looking to save their money. Her bank was an unregulated place where money changed hands purely on the basis of confidence. Historian Rob has said of Sarah, quote, I think there's a similarity between being a fortune teller and making money on the stock market, making predictions about the future and getting people to believe that you know something about how the trends are going to play. So going back to Sarah's release from prison, returning home, amazingly, Sarah was able to set up a new banking enterprise called the Woman's Bank, and her locations were in elegant apartments along West Concord Street in Boston. It was the same con, but this time she offered a more modest 7% interest as opposed to the ladies' deposit 8% returns. She operated the Women's Bank for two years until one day when a woman from Maine called to retrieve her investment and found that she could not. There was no money to be retrieved. Sarah left town with an estimated $50,000 in deposits to avoid prosecution. The Boston Herald, again reporting on Sarah, wrote that, quote, Mrs. Sarah E. Howe of the Woman's Bank fame has absconded with $50,000 of the depositor's money. Ever since her release from confinement on the charges of swindling depositors in her bank, she has continued the business of receiving deposits of money from women, paying or promising to pay exceedingly high rates of interest, therefore. Sarah left Boston for Chicago and set up the same swindle for a third time, this time named Ladies Provident Aid. It operated in a very familiar way. She targeted women and promised 7% interest a month, with three months' interest offered in advance. As this, though, was not her first go at running the same financial con, reporters were catching on, and local reporters in Chicago quickly exposed her. She was arrested on an outstanding warrant and jailed pending trial over the Women's Bank scam when she returned to Boston. But because the prosecution was unable to find any witnesses willing to testify they'd fallen for the scam, the charges against Sarah were dropped. This is a pretty common problem that persists today. Experts say people who are swindled often don't report the crime because they're just too embarrassed that they fell for it in the first place. Sarah this time did not make a comeback as a financial agent. She returned to her former profession of fortune-telling, and she charged 25 cents per reading. When Sarah died at the age of roughly 65 in 1892, she was broke and she was alone. The New York Times printed an obituary that described her final days as so, quote, For three months, she had been living in a boarding and lodging house, carefully keeping from those whom she met the knowledge that she was the notorious Mrs. Howe of Women's Bank memory. Sarah insisted until the day she died on this one thing, that she had not been responsible for the lady's deposit. It was not I, she said. I did no swindling. Sarah, you liar. <laughs> Let's drink to this. Indeed, it's time for some scam sauce.
In thinking about this drink and in Sarah's story, I was thinking about a couple things. One, I started thinking about gin because though the gin craze that was really deeply problematic had happened sometime before in the 1700s and there had been a lot of legislation about it and regulations put in place, by the mid-1800s, people were consuming gin again at a rate that had been where it had been when they had made all of those regulations. Now, presumably, this was gin that was not as terrifying and made with as much cavalier disregard for safety or quality. Right. But it was still very popular in the 1800s, as it is today. So I thought, we got to do a gin drink. And then I started looking at gin drinks from the time, and I picked out one that I loved, which is a gin daisy. But I thought we would do our own twist on it. I've never actually even heard of a gin daisy before. You haven't? No. In some ways, the daisy with other spirits is sometimes referenced as like a precursor to a margarita. It's basically like just a matter of balancing it out with that sour formula we use all the time. I also wanted to think about something that should Sarah have offered any of her potential depositors a little libation in her golden offices. It would have to be something that felt a little bit fancy, maybe a little stereotypically feminine, so something with a little flower action going on. So this starts by infusing gin with a little hibiscus tea. This is, again, I've done it before. It's one of my favorite things on earth to do, to like switch up the flavor profile of a spirit. You literally, in this case, I just use a tiny, adorable four-ounce mason jar. I put in one hibiscus tea bag, and I filled it with gin, and I gave it a quick shake, and I went away for 30, 40 minutes to do other things. And then when I went back, I shook it again. It was a beautiful red, and I pulled out the tea bag and went about my business. So this drink is two ounces of that beautiful red gin, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, a half ounce of simple syrup. And then just a quarter ounce of orgeat. If you don't have orgeat, another almond syrup is fine. And then this just gets shaken up all together with ice and then strained into a pre-chilled cocktail glass. I used a demi-sized Nick and Nora and it was Mm -hmm. perfect. And then I just gave it a garnish of a cocktail cherry because that way you also get a little bit of extra syrup from the cherry and it makes it, it's this beautiful pinky red color. It looks very fancy, but it also has (laughs) a lot of punch to it. Yes, this is a gin-forward drink. Right. If you are not a big gin drinker, I always, as you know, have my beloved test things. And I told him this is a very spirit-forward drink, and I handed it to him, and he drank it, and he said, I don't think so. It doesn't taste very boozy. And I was like, whoa, there's a lot of gin in there. Um, (laughs) So that's a good indicator of how much we have transformed Gin. Exactly. Or his palate is starting to change. <laughs> I think a lot of that, too, is the scent of it because it still smells of hibiscus and that almond together, which does impact how your palate perceives things. It doesn't feel like you're drinking a heavy, heavy drink. Although I would I wanted a second one and dared not because I have work to do. Today. <laughs> this is the easiest mocktail in the world. You're just going to make hibiscus tea instead of using a hibiscus tea infused gin. Everything else is the same. And then you are off to the races with a very, very lovely and again, refreshing and kind of fancy feeling libation. It's like a basic that we just dressed up. I know. <laughs> Much like Sarah just dressed up a scam to look fancy. Exactly. 
8%. Sure. <laughs> That's the 8% interest is what we're calling it. We hope that if you make it, you delight in it as much as we do and that you have a wonderful time, whether you're drinking the cocktail or the mocktail. We're so grateful that you spent this time with us. We will be right back here again next week with another scam sauce and another story of swindling. And we hope you're here with us. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.